welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, friends, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We are rounding uh, half, well, we're past halfway in our series on Hebrews, and so we'll be looking at uh, the first part of chapter 8 this morning. Uh, if you are new here, I uh, want to remind you we have a prayer space over here on my right, your left. Uh, at any time during the gathering, you're welcome to use that. Uh, there's markers in there if you want to draw on the wall. We encourage that around here. So if you just need to get that out, feel free. Um, and then after the gathering, there will be people available for prayer if you have any need they would love to pray with you. So Hebrews chapter 8, I'll ask you to stand and we will read scripture and we will dive in. <clears throat> says this, now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human, a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there were already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received, or the, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. And after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the, great, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and rem will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Pray with me. God, as we uh, look at this text and we study it, as we hope to hear from you, I pray that that would be the case. That is, uh, we gather in this place, we recognize that you are in our midst, that you are alive and active, that your word is alive and active. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, just like we sang for the little ones, that you would, uh, that would be the case for us. So we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, amen, you can have a seat. <coughs> Excuse me. So last week, if you were with us, just a little bit of review, we looked at chapter 7, which is a bizarre character named Melchizedek, and uh, we learned a little bit about him, that 
there were similarities to Jesus, and so the author of Hebrews highlights those. We learned that uh, there's this, uh, this pull for many of us, especially in religious communities, to keep doing what we've always done. And I think one of the encouragements for the writer of Hebrews is to say, hey, something is moving here. There's something happening, and I want to invite you into that, to not keep going back to what you've been doing for whatever reason, but to move along with and to, to, to say yes to what's being offered here in Jesus. And then lastly, that the offer still stands. Melchizedek and the king of Sodom stand before Abraham in Genesis 14 and offer two things. One is entrance into the sacred life, the, the, the sacred future, the divine experience of life here with God, and the other is without that. So this week, we ter- look at chapter 8, and this sort of turning point where the author, if you remember, has been talking about how Jesus is uh, superior to the angels and to Moses, and then last, uh, last week, Melchizedek, and he turns a corner and starts moving towards this conversation about a new covenant and the sacrifice that has been made in Jesus. And it's a, it's a pretty technical chapter, if you're, if you're being honest. Uh, there's a lot in there. We could spend weeks on, on each of the verses. We're not going to do that. But I want to highlight two things that I think the author does, which is show these, these two ideas of copies and contrasts. And then we'll ask what are some of the implications of that. So if you comb through chapter 8, you begin to realize that the author pulls out or draws on a couple of different ideas. And he says essentially that these are, or they function as, copies, shadows, foreshadows, or foretelling of something that was to come. And he sort of uh, uh, explicates that. Uh, When I was a kid, I grew up with four brothers. Many of you have known this. I've shared a few stories about our time together as brothers, but we used to play all kinds of ridiculous games as kids. Did anybody ever play Ditch? Do you remember that one? It's it's sort of like hide-and-go-seek. We used to do these things called nickel knockers. Wait for it. This one's awesome. So you get a Band-Aid and a nickel and a piece of string, like really, really small string, like sewing uh, thread. And you, 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 you take the, the thread from one window in your bedroom, uh, and you run it all the way across the street to your neighbor's house. And then you take the Band-Aid, and you take one part of it, and you put it on the window, the upper corner of a window. And then you take the nickel, and you put that on the other side of the Band-Aid with the string under it. So when you pull on the string, the nickel comes up, and you let go, and it knocks. <laughs> You know where this is going, right? So we did this to our neighbors, and late at night, we would pull on the string, tick, 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 and you'd see the lights come on, and people were like running around trying to figure it out, and we were just howling in our bedrooms, nickel knockers. So kids, that's free. Talk to your parents about that one. Just, I mean, just dumb stuff. We had this one game called tennis baseball, which of course was a combination of tennis and baseball. Uh, About 200 and so feet were two fences. Well, starting from the sewer cap, which was home base on our street, 1057 Van Buren. So uh, about 200 or so feet were fences on either side of the street, and those were the home run fences. And there were two outfielders, one pitcher, one outfielder, and then all the kids in the neighborhood would come and we would play this version of baseball where you'd use a tennis racket to, to, to bat, and then uh, the, the, the little sidewalk at uh, Andy's house was first base. We put a two-by-four for second base. Uh, Betsy and uh, her sister, we called them the old hags. <laughs> The riders, man, they were cantankerous. That was third base, and then home base, right? One of my brothers was a lefty, and somehow, inevitably, he would figure out a way to hit the tennis ball behind him at Nina's house, which was over here. Just major turn on it. Cracko right into Nina's house. We played uh, street hockey, so when this was back before they plowed a lot in St. Paul. Oh, wait. (laughs) Hello. 
um, we would play street hockey where we'd bring a net out into the street and all the snow got packed down and we would, with a tennis ball and in one goalie, I was always the goalie, which inevitably ended with bloody noses, frozen tennis balls shot at your face, not cool. But, you know, we would play these games that had a, a, like a resemblance to the games that we know as baseball and hockey, but in the one case, we used a sewer cap for home base and a tennis racket, and in the other case, we didn't even use skates. We didn't even play on ice. But you could tell that these things would somehow grow into, or they looked, they, they resembled, they were a shadow, a copy of what we know as hockey and baseball, as it were. And I want to suggest that this is exactly, or similarly, the writer of Hebrews is doing the same thing, where he's saying this thing that you've known is a shadow, a copy, a foretelling, a foretaste of what is to come. So he does that on four different things. First, he does it with the law. He says, essentially, the law was a shadow of something to come. Chapter 10 opens with this verse. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. So the law points us towards the thing that we need and that we eventually find in Christ, which was true and forever forgiveness. Torah and the law was a shadow of, and it was this thing that it never, it never alleviated the need to keep coming back again and again and again to sacrifice to the temple, right? And so the, the writer says, in that way, it's, it, was a, it, it resembled, but it wasn't, the full, it wasn't the fullness of it. It grew or it progressed in the coming of Jesus and in, in the giving of the Spirit of, of God. Because for the Jewish people, the, the giving of Torah at Sinai was the giving and the receiving of God's Spirit, essentially. And at Pentecost, ironically enough, 49 days after, if you could, we'll do another sermon on the way these all fall. It's very fascinating. The Spirit of God is given to the church. So the author compares and contrasts the law and the giving of the Spirit. He does this again with the tabernacle, right? In the, in the Jewish life, there was a tabernacle with Moses way back in the, the first version of it, which he built out in the desert. And then there was another temple that was built by Solomon, then again by Herod later. But the tabernacle and the temple were both, the writer says, a shadow, a copy of, and we know this because in Exodus 24, Moses is told, build a copy, literally the word is icon, build an icon of what you see. So in Exodus 24, Moses is given a vision of the heavenly tabernacle, God's abode, God's domain, and he says, build a copy of what you see, essentially. And so the tabernacle becomes that, and the temple becomes that. And in specific, in the tabernacle and in the temple, the Holy of Holies, right? If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Day of Atonement and what happens on the Day of Atonement, where the high priest once a year goes all the way, not just into the first court, not into the second court, but like all the way back into the Holy of Holies. And what's interesting, when we talk about like uh, the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle, for many of us, it's this divorce, Right? Between this sort of temporal, um, secular, or earthly thing, which will pass away, and then the heavenly thing, which is eternal and will last forever. And that actually is a nod to Plato, not anything Jewish, if you didn't know this. Do you remember the cave, the allegory of the cave? Did anybody read that in like philosophy? One, yeah, a couple. Okay, good, good. So you, if you don't know the story, there's this guy in a cave, and there are like real things back here, and then there's a fire, and then like... It, it sort of casts, or how does that work? I guess it would have to be, well, anyhow, there's a shadow on a wall, and so he starts to think about this idea that everything that we see, like this music stand, is a shadow or a, a version of the real form that exists somewhere else in another world. And this thing is sort of temporal and won't last, but that's the real perfect thing. And the way we think about space, the way we think about 
the earth and heaven actually is more platonic than it is Jewish. And we, get, we know this because of, for at least one, how the Jews understood the, the Holy of Holies. When, you, the, when the priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement in Yom Kippur, the, they believed that the, that the earth and heaven were not two separate divorced realities, but were different realms that actually intermingled at different points, most specifically or poignantly in the Holy of Holies, where they, they believed that the, the priest was actually going into heaven, the domain in which God's rule and reign is actual. And in fact, that that was intermingled and connected to the earth that we live in here. So when the writer of Hebrews says, listen, the tabernacle and the temple, it's a, it's a copy, it's a shadow, it's a foretelling of, I want to encourage you not to divorce the two, but to say that this thing that was here actually becomes more full. And that when Jesus goes into the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy of Holies, he's in God's, God's abode, God's dwelling, and he's there forever, which is different than the high priest who only got to go into that place once a year. So he does this comparing and contrasting with the law, with the tabernacle. He does it with the priests, the the people who would come and offer sacrifice weekly, daily in the temple. That these people, he says, the priests in the covenant before came from a line. They came from a lineage, right? Because they were always dying and they had to be replaced. Whereas Jesus is from a totally different order, as it were, a different line, which is why he connects him to Melchizedek. We talked about that last week. So he compares and contrasts the priests, the tabernacle, the law, and finally, the covenants, the old and the new covenant. In verses 6 and 7, he reminds us that if there was nothing wrong with the old covenant, then there wouldn't have been need for something new. If this thing was able to do what it was intended to do, which was bring people into relationship with God forever, then there wouldn't have been need for something else, but in fact, there was need, and Jesus' death and resurrection not only secures that need, but sort of ratifies it. It, it, it makes it real. Now, what are the implications of this? Like, interesting, okay, fascinating, he makes these compare and contrast, and these things, the priest, the, pro, or the, the, priest, the law, the tabernacle, the covenants, there's this old and new kind of shadow, and then foretelling of what's to come. Okay, interesting, what does this really mean? Let me offer just a couple of implications. One is this, I would say it this way, better doesn't mean bad, it just means better. And this actually means, this is important, And I hope that I can convince you of why. Better doesn't mean bad, it just means better. It means it moved, it progressed, it grew. Uh, We live in a culture that's either or, right? It's either this or that. And and for example, if I say um, about another woman, she's beautiful. The person that I'm in relationship with often will think, then that means I'm not. Right? Or if one partner says that person's attractive, then the other partner immediately thinks, then that means I'm not. If you were to say to a pastor on a Sunday, man, that sermon last week was amazing. A lot of pastors, not me, of course, because I've, you know, I'm so mature. A lot of pastors will immediately think, well, then this week probably wasn't that good. Right? We do this either or kind of thing. And so when we make a statement about something, it has, like if I, if I elevate one thing, I immediately, in my mind, I devalue the other thing. 
So when the writer of Hebrews says that the new covenant is better, in fact, the word better is used more in Hebrews than it is in all of the other New Testament books combined. So when the writer says that the new covenant is better, immediately we do this divorce and we devalue the thing that came before it, which, has, which is pretty disrespectful to people who maybe are Jewish and who grew up in a, in a, in a different kind of understanding of Torah and law. I was just with a, a rabbi last week, uh, uh, Rabbi Edelheit, fascinating fellow, um, and he talked about the importance of how we as Christians, when we study scripture and when we talk about these things, that we think about how it might sound and how it might be heard by other people, which I think is a very valuable gift, a good encouragement. So I want to just make sure that we're not saying or that we're not understanding it in such a way that when we understand Hebrews, and if you take Hebrews seriously, I think you have to, uh, you have to work this out that the writer of Hebrews is saying that something has happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that moves the whole thing a click forward, that grows it a step, that moves it beyond what it was. And so these things, the prophets, or excuse me, the priests, the law, the tabernacle, the covenant, it's grown, it's moved beyond that thing. So better doesn't mean bad. This thing held a place in time and space that was of great value for the people of God and remains of value. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're Christian, it's a part of our story and it's a part of our understanding of God and how God covenants God's self to us. Better doesn't mean bad, it just means better. It just means, and the actual word has this idea of movement or progression or growth. So I would say, first, better doesn't mean bad, it just means better. Second, the days have come. In chapter 8, there is the longest Old Testament quotation in the entire book of Hebrews, and it comes from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is in the category of like Isaiah 9, which is the government will be on his shoulders, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. You know that one, right? Okay. <laughs> we do that at Christmas, like that's a big one. You know, it's talking about the Messiah. And, and then, then Isaiah 61, Jesus comes into, in Luke 4 into the temple and he quotes from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me to preach the good news, uh, give, set the captives free, that one, you remember? I mean, these are big Isaiah uh, passages. Jeremiah 31 is in that category because it foretells, and we read about it, of the days in which or the day when God will write a new covenant on the hearts of his people. And what's fascinating about the first covenant, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. The days have come. The point being made here by the writer of Hebrews, because interestingly, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, it begins with, but in these last days, God has spoken through his son. And I want to suggest that the point being made here is the writer of Hebrews thinks that the time that Jeremiah was talking about when God would do something new and write a new covenant on the hearts of the people so that all would, be, would know God and all would be forgiven, that that time has come. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, something has changed and there's a new covenant. The same one that God spoke of in Jeremiah chapter 31. So those days are here. They've come. We're in them. And now is when I turn to a bizarre topic of when the Lord will come back, and these are the days of the rapture. And... Kidding. 
totally joking. You guys are all sweating, right? Like, oh my gosh, left behind, is it coming? No, it's not. Okay, I, re- I actually taught, the, the, here's an interesting, I, when I was a youth pastor, like junior high youth pastor, right out of school, I'm, I'm, I'm like, hey, let's jump in the deep end of the pool. And I thought, let's teach the junior hires about Revelation, right? If you want people to come to church, talk about having babies, you know, that whole deal. There are kids in the room that talk about that topic or Revelation because kids just get fascinated by that. So I just like lock, stock, and barrel the whole Left Behind series just like right to these junior high kids. Oh, Lord have mercy. I hope and pray that they don't remember anything from that. But the days have come. That's why I said that. That's, that, that's the tie-in, in case you're wondering. What on earth is he talking about? Uh, l- lastly, let me, end the, let me end with a question. And the question is why? Why, did the, why was there need for a new covenant? What do we learn about God because of this new covenant that has been written on the hearts of these people? Why? The first covenant with Abraham and with Moses and with the people of Israel was conditional. The idea was, if you will be faithful, then I will dot, dot, dot. And you see this all over Deuteronomy and and Leviticus and, and Numbers where God says, if you will just come back to me, if you will be faithful, if you will not sell yourself out to the neighbors around you, if you will, then I will. And it was this condition What we see in Jesus is the ultimate grace of God. Why is there need for a new covenant? What do we see in, what do we learn about? What do we see in God? We see the grace of God. God gave us the chance to be in relationship with God in the garden, and we opted out. God gave the chance to be in relationship in and through Israel, and for what many reasons, which we all know too well, we opt out. And then in this covenant, In Christ, God opts in on our behalf, in and through Jesus, the perfect, fully human, and does something that we can't do, which is remain faithful to this relationship with God. And so God says, I will opt in as the perfect human in Jesus to this covenant and relationship. So what we see is this deal that has been done, this thing that has been drawn up, is a relationship and a covenant that both partners will always remain faithful And Jesus says, or because of the faithfulness of Jesus, the perfect human, there is always a way into the presence of and relationship with God because of the faithfulness of Christ. Why? Why is that? Why do we need that? Or why does God give that? It's grace. It's absolute, pure, unadulterated grace. Because of the lavish heart of God and love of God, God makes a way by which there is always an open door to relationship with God in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, our brother, the second Adam, Paul calls him. So the author of Hebrews says to his audience, 
don't you see how foolish it would be to keep working in this system when this thing is on the table, when this new deal has been made? Don't you see how foolish it would be to keep pumping quarters into this machine that will not pay out when this thing is here waiting for anyone and everyone who will take it? Do you see how foolish that would be to keep doing those things that you've done only because you've done them for years when this thing is on the table being offered to you? And so I will just close this morning and say, for your consideration, I would say the same thing. Do you, do you see how foolish it is that we, these systems that we create in order to try to be in relationship with God, whether it be through the good things that we do or the effort that we make or the time that we spend in church or the number of check boxes there are on our ticket, do you see how, not you're foolish, but do you see how foolish that is When this is on the table, grace and gift and relationship with God through Christ. So the author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, puts these two things out and he says, look, friends, do you see what I'm talking about? And I would just do the same this morning and offer that to you. I feel like lately I've been teaching or preaching to maybe maybe those who aren't convinced and, uh, and I think that there's a time and a place for that. I think it, sometimes we do that too often. But I feel like Hebrews keeps leading us to that place of look at what God has done in Jesus and look at what is offered. And do you see the implications of this person who has created this new, and we talked about it in in baptism, this new covenant, this new deal, where there is always an open door for any and all who come by faith in Christ. And so I don't know where you come from this morning. I don't know where you are. Maybe you've been a part of churches your whole life and you've got to the point where you're just like, you know what, if that's what it looks like, I'm not interested. Or if it means I have to hang out with those people, no thank you. Or if it means I have to vote like that, then no thanks. And I just want to suggest that there's, a, there's maybe a different way to see it. Maybe there are other ways to say, who is this? If Jesus was real, and he actually lived, and he actually died, and he was actually resurrected from the dead, then I would, I would argue it changes everything. So there you have it. What say you? which is always our invitation and always our question. This isn't about religion. This isn't about duty. This isn't about coming and punching tickets. It's about who is Jesus. And I think the author of Hebrews says, you would be wise to center and build your life around this person of Jesus. And I would say, trust and follow. Build your life around it and see if you don't experience more and more and more of the grace of God and the love of God and the hopes and dreams for God, for you, for the world, I think it is the best possible way to live. And I'm a thinker. I ask a lot of questions. For me, following Jesus wasn't about some dramatic experience where I had the heavens opened up and I saw the, you know, some sort of vision. For me, it's like, you know what? If Jesus is real and resurrection happened, it changes everything. And if it did, I think it's the best way to live. And I think it's the way to live connected to God in the world. So that's my story. I don't know about you, but I offer it for your consideration this morning. 
I think most of the time when pastors get done, they pray uh, with a sermon, when they get done with a sermon. So let me offer just a brief word of prayer. And uh, I want to invite you to a time of silence, actually. Um, we've been doing this more lately, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm really digging it, because I think that it says there's other voices that are important. Um, so I'm going to offer a word of prayer. I'm going to invite you to a time of silence. And I would just invite you to consider that question. Um, if resurrection's real, what does that mean for my life? Maybe you've followed Jesus your whole life. Maybe you've never committed to following Jesus. Spend a few moments thinking about that question. If resurrection's real, what does that mean? So pray with me if you would. God, I ask that uh, as we enter this time of silence, that we would have the capacity to be honest with ourselves, that whatever is swirling around, maybe it's questions or doubts or skepticism or a hunger for something that we don't yet have but can't find, whatever it is, God, I pray that uh, honesty and authenticity would be very present in these next few moments. And God, as we think about if resurrection was real, and what this author is writing to this small little church so long ago has any bearing on our lives right now. If resurrection is real, what does that mean? And I pray, God, that you would speak, that your voice would be louder than any of the other voices, that whatever is of you that's been offered this morning would stand on its own, would grow in our hearts, whatever wasn't and isn't of you would just fall off the radar. But God, be near us, we pray. Friends, as you go today, my hope and my prayer is that you would know, if you don't already, that you would come to know, if you've forgotten that you would be reminded that in Christ, you have always been loved, called, named, welcomed, that in Christ, God has said yes to you and for you. May the grace and peace of God be yours, I pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Blessings. Happy Mother's Day. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter. Community. See you next time.